0: Our scripture reading this evening is found in the book of Proverbs and chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, the penultimate chapter of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs ends with two chapters that are independent compositions originally. First chapter, chapter 30, is the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, and the second Verse, well, chapter 31 is the words of King Lemuel that he learned from his mother. So Proverbs chapter 30. The words of Agar the son of Jacob, his utterance. The man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukar Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The leecher's two daughters give and give. There are three things that are never satisfied, four never say enough, the the grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire that never says, Enough! The eye that mocks his father, and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea. And the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceptionally wise. The answer of people not strong, yet, they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skilfully grasps with its hands and is in king's palaces. There are three things which are majestic in pace, yes, four which are stately in walk. A lion which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Proverbs is a unity but it's, it's a collection it is a compilation of wisdom very largely of course the larger part is solomon but here we have wisdom from agur now agur is not a hebrew name but there are similarities between this book the style of this or the style rather of this chapter and the book of job which suggests, as many commentators have brought out, that Agur is a contemporary of Job. Someone similar to Job, a wise, godly man, outside of Israel at that time. And Agur continues in this wisdom tradition. That the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. that Wisdom begins with true reverence. And we see here contemplations, both of the natural world and also of God Himself. He begins speaking very much of faith. We may say that Eger, to some extent, is faith seeking understanding. He believes and he looks at the world and he learns from the world. Lessons from God's creation. Because he believes. The Christian, the believer, looks at the world. And sees in the world what the unbeliever cannot see. And that too is an aspect of wisdom. And it's one that's very much brought out here. There are basically two unequal sections of this chapter. The first section is verses 1 through 9. Which speaks of the personal Piety of Agar. And the second section, the rest of the chapter, gives us his wisdom looking at the world. So we have, first of all, faith and wisdom, and secondly, wisdom looking at the world. First we have faith. Now, I read, of course, from the New King James, but if you've got a different translation... Verse 1 may read slightly differently. Verse 1 in the authorised version and in the New King James. Reads the words of Agar the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Now that's the actual, not just the, the original Hebrew letters. But also it's the vocalisation, the vowels. Hebrew as you know is written without vowels. Some translations have revocalized the statement about Ithiel and Ukal to make it say something else. But the original, the Hebrew text that we have read as the authorized version and as the New King James. Others will have it say something along the lines of, I am weary and worn out. In other words, either it goes with verse 2 in terms of him speaking of his being humbled or, and more likely, it speaks of the people to whom he was speaking at the time. These two disciples of his, Ithiel and Huchal. And he begins with this great statement of humility. Now, there is a certain hyperbole in it. This is... As the New King James has printed it in his poetry. And it's that hyperbole we sometimes find in some of our hymns. Many hymn hymn books have changed the wording of some hymns to remove particularly the tendency some of our 18th century forefathers had of referring to themselves as worms. But it's that kind of poetic hyperbole. I am nothing. I am as a worm. Surely I am more stupid than any man. He's speaking of the the limitations. Even of wisdom. And the limitations of human understanding. We cannot comprehend God. We cannot even comprehend the world. And thinking on the greatness of God. He feels his own inadequacy. So that the. The whole point of verses 2 and 3 is summed up at the end of verse 3. Nor have knowledge of the Holy One. I cannot fully know God. What we know of God is but a, a small part of who he is. Because he is infinite and we are finite. And when we approach God we approach him then in humility. He is God and we are not. He is great and we are little. And here is a man who was regarded as a a sage, a wise man in his age. And he says, I am nothing compared to God. My understanding of God is effectively nothing. But he has an understanding because he understands how little he understands the first step of wisdom is understanding that we cannot understand fully. Now we can know truly. One of the great errors of our modern age is the postmodern philosophy that says because we can't know everything, we can't know anything. Now we can know truly some parts of knowledge. But when it comes to God, we can only know what He reveals to us. Now. If, as I've suggested, as many commentators suggest, this is from the days of Job, how little was known of God in the days of Job. How little did he have in the way of Scripture. There is so little here. But even we who have the whole Bible can say we cannot know God perfectly. Who has ascended to heaven or descended? And here, verse Before we have an echo, really, the language of Job, chapter 38. Job, chapter 38. The language of God, God speaking to Job. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy? You can see the similarities between Proverbs 30 and Job 38. Who has done these things? Why? The answer, of course, is God himself. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that there is nobody who has ascended into heaven. No man has ascended to heaven in this sense but the Son of Man who is in heaven. But Christ himself has descended and he then has now ascended on high. He is the one who has made all things and we know God in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Agur wrote the words, what is his name, what is his son's name? He was simply using a proverbial way of speaking in his day. But we may look and we may say that to us his son's name is Jesus Christ. God incarnate, God for us. And to know God we must know him in Christ Jesus. All other knowledge about God is insufficient, we must know him in Christ Jesus because no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. And so if we are to know God we come to verse 5. We come to his word. Every word of God is pure. God has spoken. And all his words are pure words. When it comes to human words. There is so often such a mixture in human words. We may find the, the sublimest poet and find that he has written falsely. Even the greatest poets have their sins, their faults. But every word of God is pure. There is no falsehood in any of his words. And his words lead us to do what they lead us to put that our trust in him. Because he is a shield. He protects those who trust in those who believe in him. The word of God is intended to bring us to faith. And therefore the word of God is of supreme importance. And we are not to treat it as though it were but the word of a man. We've recently had that uh, Controversy, in fact, still ongoing controversy in the news about the rewriting of the works of certain authors. The uh, alterations to Raald Dahl's novels, uh, that, although I noted with some amusement reading an article on them that uh, I had missed an earlier update that had already changed things from what I remembered when I was a lad. And again, comments have been made about rewriting and altering Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. And people have quite rightly been annoyed and upset at this. But these are just the works of sinful men. The alterations are simply, however egregious they may be, they are simply men changing men's words. But what about changing God's words? What about man sitting in judgment over the word of God? Not in terms of asking, what is the accurate translation of these words? No, our English versions and French versions and Welsh versions and other translations of the Bible are just that, they're translations. And every translator asks the question, what is the most accurate way to translate this passage? I'm not talking about differences of translation here. I'm talking about people ch- trying to change what God's word actually says. Looking at it and saying, well, I don't like that. I'm going to alter it. And there are many ways that people try to do that. Sometimes it is simply by looking at it and saying, well, I'm going to change the translation here so it doesn't say... Anything related to the original. occasion well, not just occasionally, uh, more than occasionally one comes across people saying, well, the original Hebrew says, or the original Greek says this, but over here there's the Aramaic, which is a translation, I remind you, and that's slightly different, so we'll go with the translation. And sometimes it's just, well, I don't like the implications of this when it says that homosexuality is an abomination, when it says that um, women may not be pastors and therefore I will change it. That's adding to his words. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And of course the other way to do this isn't to just take the Bible but to teach falsely. When a, a preacher or a teacher takes the Bible and makes it say what it was not intended to say. Gives a false spin to a passage. That too is adding to God's word. The Lord Jesus Christ says severe things to those who add to his words at the the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18 we read. For I testify to everyone who here's the word of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. To add to the Bible is a fearful thing. Whether it's the, the Mormons with their false scriptures. Or other people who have false scriptures. Or whether it's the false teacher who twists the Bible to say things. Or the man who says... Thus says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken to him. Do not add to his words. And then, Agur speaks of his prayer. And we have this wise prayer. Two things he wants in his life from God. The first is this. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. A life apart from lies and falsehoods. The world is full of lies and falsehood. The Bible tells us that lies originate with the devil himself. He was the first liar. He was indeed as Christ as a liar from the beginning. And when he lies, he speaks his own language. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Let me have, he says, a life of truth. A life of truth. A life that rests upon God's word. And give me neither poverty nor riches. He prays secondly for that medium, that middle state. Neither to be very rich nor to be very poor. Because he sees the temptations of both positions. That the the rich man says, who is the Lord? The rich man is tempted not to trust in God. He has his riches, he trusts in them. The very poor man, on the other hand, the man who is starving... Is tempted to compromise his integrity and steal. And then to swear falsely and to lie and profane the name of God. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Enough for today. The Apostle Paul tells us he learned from God. To be content in whatever situation he was in. But those who hasten to be rich. Again and again it's mentioned in scripture. Those who hasten to be rich fall into a snare. Piety. Humility. The prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And then Eger turns to look at the world and the lessons that we have from the world. We have a number of uh, numbered sayings, and scattered among them these uh, little individual proverbs. So, verse 10 is about not slandering, and that's the implication here slandering. A servant, someone who is in a, a lowly position to his master, because you, you slander him, you lie about him, you hurt him. Don't do that, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. Verse seventeen speaks of the eye that mocks his father, and that very concrete image of the man who looks down at his father and scorns obedience to his mother. And the end result is that he he comes to a sticky end. We see him dead in the desert. And the ravens light upon the corpse and do what carrion birds do. And then we have these numbered sayings. Verses 11 to 14 speak about the wicked. doesn't say anything immediately about what happens to the wicked. Although verse 17 picks up some of that. But it simply describes the wicked and they are vile. They are unpleasant. And the great problem with the wicked is verse 12. They are pure in their own eyes. Yet not washed from their filthiness. That they don't think that they are wrong. They are so proud. The proud generation of the wicked And oh how lofty are their eyes. And they are proud. And they are violent. Whose teeth are like swords. Whose fangs are like knives. Who devour the poor from off the earth. And the needy from among men. Those who oppress. And rob the poor. The people who nobody cares about. Beware the wicked. There are three things that are never satisfied. And it really begins with verse 15. The leech. Has two daughters. And this is, to some extent, feeding off the previous verses that speak of the wicked. The wicked are never satisfied. Now, in nature, first of all, the leech is never satisfied. The leech has its two suckers and it sucks blood. Give, give, it says. Now, the leech does eventually get gorged and it drops off. But there are three things that are never satisfied for that never say enough. The grave, the grave never seems satisfied. People keep on dying. The barren womb, the woman who is unable to have children, is always praying and crying out. And we see the examples again and again in Scripture of women who couldn't have children. They're always praying and crying out to God for children. We see Hannah weeping there at Shiloh in the place of the tabernacle. The earth that is not satisfied with water, you have to keep on watering the garden. Remember, of course, we in an an ancient Near Eastern setting, it's a hot climate, you've got to keep on watering. And the fire that never says enough. The fire, as long as there's something, it keeps on burning. The fire is never reaches a point where it's okay, I've burned enough. It doesn't matter how much material there is. I'm not going to burn anymore. It just burns and burns and burns. But is there not here a reminder of a deeper fire. A fire that is for that generation who devour the poor from off the earth. The fire that God has prepared for the wicked. Verse 18 we come on to. Four natural wonders. That are followed by an unnatural one. For natural wonders. The way of an eagle in the air. Do you see an eagle? You go up into the, the Brecon Beacons perhaps. Up into, North, or up into North Wales. And you see one of those majestic. Birds. Flying in the air. Wings outstretched. Riding the thermals. Ah it's a marvellous sight. How, does it, how do they fly? Well of course the ancients. ...didn't have the sort of sophisticated wind tunneling, etc. We have, it's just, it's amazing. How does the eagle fly such a a big bird and yet it can fly? The serpent on the rock, it's got no legs. How do serpents, snakes, move over the the rock? It looks amazing. If you've ever seen one moving or seen a video of a, a snake moving on the rock... The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. In the midst of a storm, perhaps, on the Mediterranean. And it forges onwards, cutting through the waves. How does that work? And the way of a man with a virgin. Well, we can understand, by science, we can understand the way of the eagle in the air. The way of the serpent on the rock. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. But I defy the scientists to understand the relations between men and women, to understand how a man and a woman fall in love, how their relationship builds, how does it work. It's a wonderful thing, the relationship of a man and a woman. These are natural wonders, things that God has created. When Adam saw Eve for the first time, he fell in love with her at first sight. There was love before the fall. But, verse 20, we have an unnatural wonder. The adulterous woman. The wife who doesn't love her husband, but goes after other men. And the implication here is, this is not a woman who just goes after one other man. She goes after many other men. And to her, it's just Like eating dinner. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. I've done no wickedness. A conscience seared with a hot iron. Unnatural. The relationship, the love of a husband and a wife is a natural and a glorious thing. Therefore, adultery is unnatural. And having spoken of this unnatural thing, Ego goes on to speak of four other unnatural things. A servant when he reigns. These are the four things the earth cannot stand. A servant when he reigns. The servant, the slave, who is put on the throne. Because the problem is, the servant put on the throne tends to behave like a slave. He tends to reign in a vicious and unpleasant way. He's always afraid of somebody else replacing him. And so the servant on the throne unsettles the kingdom. A fool when he is filled with food. The fool is satisfied. The fool should be the man who doesn't get on in life because he's a fool. He doesn't follow God's wisdom and if he's filled with food and he's satisfied and nevertheless he hurts and abuses people a hated woman our translation is a hateful woman it's hateful, hated and it's here very much we are to think of Leah and Jacob Jacob loved Rachel but he was married to Leah first and she was hated. And when a woman who is hated by her husband... And that's the implication here. Hated by her husband. She's married. And he hates her. Again, there will be fighting and strife and trial and trouble. And a maidservant who succeeds her mistress... And the implication here is that you've got a man. This culture may very well have been that polygamy existed... You've got a man who's, who's got a wife. And he decides he wants to take his maidservant as a, a second wife. And he prefers the maidservant. And so she becomes the, the primary wife. first wife dies. And she goes to a position of being subservient to being equal. And even higher than her mistress. Hagar is an example of that. Because Hagar has is able to have children... The point where Sarah isn't. Hagar looks down her nose at her mistress and despises her. And again, chaos occurs. The Bible speaks of an ordered world. God has ordered things. And when things become disordered, then the earth is perturbed. But then, having spoken of the things that are unnatural... Ego comes back to speak of some natural things. Four little things. Four things that are little on the earth. An ant. There are not many things smaller than an ant. You can step on an ant and not notice it. They are not strong. And yet, they show wisdom. The ants gather their food in the summer. They're not like the sluggard who doesn't till his field. The sluggard who doesn't make provision. The ant is wise to make provision for the winter. And then the rock badgers, the hyrax. And they are feeble folk. And yet, as the name suggests, the rock badger, they live In the crags, in these natural strong points. They are feeble, and yet they live in a strong location. The locusts don't have a ruler. They don't have a king. There's no such thing as a king locust. And yet, when the locusts swarm, they advance in ranks. They're pictured, the book of uh, Joel pictures them as an army advancing The locusts are like an advancing army, and yet they have no commander, no command structure. Yet they are so mighty that they overwhelm and destroy everything in front of them. As Joel puts it in front, the the land is like the Garden of Eden behind them. It's a, a blasted wilderness. Verse 28, our translation says the spider, some say the lizard. It's not entirely clear which. This is one of those cases where, to some extent, I think the translators toss a coin to decide which they're going to say. But it's something that is small, and yet it's found in kings' palaces. Is it the lizard? I have to remember it again, the Near Eastern setting, Middle Eastern setting, where windows are open most of the time. Of course, no glass in those days, might have a lattice. And the little gecko can creep through and it's got these sticky fingers that it can climb up the walls or the spider they get everywhere don't they spiders you see the spider's webs and yes even in buckingham palace they have spider's webs the spider can get everywhere it's amazing the the skills that god has given these creatures in nature And then the mention of king's palaces leads him to think of majestic things. Majesty. And when we have these three, yes, four, the attention is supposed to be focused on the the fourth. Majestic things. First of all, the lion. The lion, the king of the beasts. The lion is fearless. Doesn't turn away from anything. Mighty among beasts. There was nothing that people could think of that was mightier than a lion. What is stronger than a lion? The greyhound. The greyhound. If you look at the greyhound, they are the most majestic looking of dogs. A male goat. There is a certain. Greatness in a male goat. The male goat is used in Daniel as a picture of Alexander the Great's kingdom. The male goat with his beard and his horns. But the most majestic thing of all is the king whose troops are with him. A king with his army is the most majestic of sights. And the Bible gives us the picture of the most majestic king with the most. Majestic army. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Verse 1. Then I looked, says John, and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth. In Emmanuel's land. Christ the King with his army. That is his church. He is majestic indeed. He is all glorious. We saw last year the solemn walk of King Charles. Before the funeral procession of his mother. There was a majesty in that. But oh, there is so much more majesty in Christ with his church. And then verses 32 and 33 are a, a closing warning again to go, taking us back to that point of humility, humility. If you've been foolish in exalting yourself, and anyone who exalts themselves is foolish. The person who makes themselves more than they are is foolish. There is a, an increasing tendency, I'm told, in the world of work for people to pad their resumes, to claim qualifications and jobs they didn't have, or to claim that they were higher in their last job than they actually were. Exalting yourself, and of course, the thing is, if you exalt yourself, and where very recently a case where a company that has suffered quite a lot from people padding their resumes. It's an IT company. And They worked on a very simple test, which was basically, we will sit these people down and say, well, you say in your resume that you know how to use this computer program. Show us. And of course, if you're lying at that point, if you're foolishly exalting yourself, you make yourself look ridiculous. You can't do it. Or if you devised evil. Put your hand on your mouth. Stop speaking. Stop speaking. Those who exalt themselves. Those who devise evil. Speak it. They bring forth anger. And verse 33 we have a comparison. As the churning of milk produces butter. And wringing the nose produces blood. So the forcing of wrath produces strife. Many years ago, there was, uh, 19th century, it was one of the old Methodist preachers. Some of these old Methodist preachers were very, very eccentric. You may have heard of uh, Billy Bragg. Very eccentric man. And this Methodist preacher was in the local, local pub, village pub, and local atheists started really assailing him saying, oh, there's not a word of truth in the Bible. And the Methodist preacher reached out, grabbed the man's nose, and gave it a mighty turn. And the atheist fell back with blood flowing freely from his nose. What did he do that for? Well, the Bible says, Proverbs 30, 33, wringing the nose produces blood. Looks like the Bible's true after all. Maybe there's some more truth in it, said the old preacher. I do not recommend that as a method of apologetics at all. It will get you in trouble. But you have this picture here. A churning of milk That's a typical thing to do. Butter in those days was made not at the creamery, but it was made at home. And the forcing of wrath produces strife. Arguments produce anger, produces strife and conflict. Instead, rather the wisdom there is a wisdom, <coughs> says Eger, in being silent, in not speaking, in not forcing wrath. Agar seems to be one of the earlier writers in the Bible up there with Job. A man who speaks of the importance of humility. And that humble faith that then looks at God's world and seeks to understand it and to learn how to live rightly and justly. And it's a faith that leads us at last as we contemplate God's world in the light of God's word. It leads us to deeper humility and to greater faith. Oh may God indeed help us to contemplate his world and to contemplate his word that we may glorify his name. Amen.